0: and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Guy and we're continuing our journey of evolving our world, or I I think of it more along the lines of evolving our thinking as to how we should approach worlds. Now, I will be the first to say, I think I overthink this whole process. At least that's when I think about what I'm thinking about. But then when I think about what other people think about, I think that I am not doing this nearly far enough in terms of pushing that envelope. Where do you sit in the spectrum? Are you someone who goes, that's way too much information. I don't care. I just want to have dark elves running around in the underdark. I want to have elves living in the forest, and I don't care how they got there. I feel that that's absolutely fine. And that is something that we do all the time in storytelling. We will accept that. We will watch movies where it's pandas trying to learn how to do martial arts. And we will go, you know what, that makes sense. At no point does anyone question, well, hang on a moment, the snake eats rodents why is the snake character not trying to eat the rodents why is the panda eating noodles and why would the panda have developed noodles when they eat bamboo in the first place oh no wait the noodles are being cooked by a duck who end up in noodles as duck soup uh uh, there is so much inconsistency in one sense But in another sense, but because that world has been created in that space, because that world says there are ducks that make noodles, and there are pandas that eat noodles, and there are snakes that don't eat rodents, they eat noodles as well, you go, okay, I accept that. That is the law, and that is the rule. When we then, if or not when, if that snake suddenly turned round and then bit somebody and they died screaming of a horrid neurotic, uh, neurotic, neucrotic poison that the Black Mamba has now injected into that character and blood sprayed everywhere, we would still accept it and say, well, okay, we've just stepped into a manga-style comic book here. That's the case. We expect tentacles soon. And then they start singing a Care Bear song about living together happily. You're going, this is a trippy space, and I'm not sure I like it anymore. Consistency is that wonderful buzzword that we all talk about, and we all know what it means. And sometimes we forget about it. When you have a world that you've created, it has to be consistent. So, if we go back to our Karu, um, Karu, Karo, Karu, Karu, Karu people, um, if we go back to our Karu people. We then have to look at what is the consistency. Are we going to say that they are following along in human evolutionary footsteps, or are we going to say, actually, we need to think a little bit outside the box? Now, we know that the way that kangaroos hop, or at least those of us that have watched documentaries on kangaroos, The way that a kangaroo hops is incredibly insane in terms of the design mechanic in its legs. Each leg acts as a reverse spring. So when it lands, it stores up an incredible amount of potential energy, which is then converted into kinetic energy as it then jumps again. In other words, when you and I try and jump, okay, let's be honest, when you try and jump, I will get there eventually, but when you try and jump, You have to use muscle strength to propel yourself upwards. In other words, you are lifting with your muscles in your legs, your body weight versus gravity. That's why we can only jump so high. It's a factor of all those wonderful equations that everyone worked out in Newtonian physics. The challenge with the kangaroo is that if it were to do that, it would die of starvation in the first day of operation. It requires a tremendous amount of energy for our muscles to be able to lift ourselves up out of a chair for some of us. But it requires a huge amount of energy for us to lift ourselves off of the ground, whereas that's primarily how the kangaroo moves around. So these muscles and sinews that exist and tendons within their legs are actually designed to counter that entire thing by absorbing, or not even absorbing, but by being tense against the jump. So that when the kangaroo propels itself upwards, it's not actually using muscle power. It is releasing the potential energy that has been stored up in those tendons because the kangaroo landed and now it can continue hopping. Almost free in terms of energy consumption. The initial jump requires energy because there is no potential energy stored in the muscles and the tendons of the kangaroo. But you only have to jump once before suddenly, boing, 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 you're on a springboard and off you go. Free hops for everyone. So we would have this predatory species that could hop very fast whilst wielding stone clubs and axes and maces. That, I think, would give them a tremendous advantage. Now, humans can run really fast for a fairly long period of time in comparison to certain animal species, which can run really fast, but only for, say, a minute or two, and then they have to stop and rest for several minutes most animals are designed for burst speed, where they need to get away from a predator very quickly, but then they slow down straight away. They're conserving their energy. Humans can override that by being stupid marathon runners and running for ridiculous amounts of time and then throwing up halfway through. But we can do it because supposedly mind over matter. I think it's actually stupid over mind over matter, but that's a different story. So our crew are now running around, killing things that are dangerous. They are getting away from predators. They are surviving and they are adapting. They're going to go on the same journey that we went through as a species as well. Being higher up gives you a great amount of advantage over animals that are lower down to the ground. So the Karoo are naturally already a tall species. Do they need to grow taller? Are we talking giraffe-like proportions? Well, not really, because they can hop. Now, I will never forget I had a dog when I was about five or six years old. His name was Sergeant Murphy. And Sergeant Murphy was what we in South Africa would call a godoy. A godoy dog. Godoy basically means a mishmash, amalgamation thing. And he had Dachshund in him. He had Fox uh, Terrier in him. He had Jack Russell in him. He had who knows what else in him. He was really a collective dog. So he had a really long body, but he had really short legs. Well, kind of short legs, but they were very springy legs, so kind of like a Jack Russell. He would go for walks with us on the farm, and I wasn't very tall, but I will never forget walking through grass that, for me, came up to my chest. For my father, I think it would have come up to his thighs. It was quite tall grass. Or maybe it was his knees, I guess. Um, nonetheless, poor old Sergeant Murphy, it was over his head and he had no idea where he was. He was just in this forest of, of grasses. And so when we were moving on and making our way around the, 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 the farm as it was, we would call out every now and again or whistle or shout. And the next moment, this dog would launch itself vertically up into the air, springing up on its little legs, look around frantically to get its bearings and then drop back down again into the grass. Now, that to me is a particularly intelligent way of realizing that the grass is quite tall, but if you jump up, you can see around a bit. So, I think in that Godoy dog, there was a little bit of intelligence. Then I remember what he used to do with electric fences, and I completely disregard that last sentence. So... Sergeant Murphy would jump up, see where he was going, and then he would move on. So his height wasn't that much of a disadvantage. Meerkats stand up on their back legs to give them extra height. This changes the height of a meerkat's head from about, mm, let's say, seven centimeters or three inches above the ground. 2 inches above the ground to about 15 centimeters, maybe 20 centimeters above the ground, 9 or 10 inches above the ground. That's not a huge change, but for the meerkats, it's spectacularly large. So for our Karu who are jumping, they're naturally going to get higher and higher as they are seeing their enemies, and I don't think they're going to lose that ability. I think that ability is going to stay with them for quite some time. It's very useful to be higher and moving fast. But they're developing these brains that start to analyze things. Where language came from, I don't think we're ever going to know. But when you think about the basics of language, again, we turn to our own planet for inspiration. We know that wolves communicate with each other by howling. I personally know that lions communicate with each other by roaring. It's not a complicated communication. It's just saying, I am here and I sound loud because I'm big and powerful. You should stay away. It's a pretty straightforward message. And generally speaking, they repeat the same message over and over again. But nonetheless, there is definitely communication. Dogs communicate through all kinds of various scents and things, as well as by barking or growling or whining. There is a range of sounds that they can do. A lot of people think that perhaps those sounds, well, might have come from spending time with humans, but wolves generally do the same thing. So there's some, some, some basis for auditory communication within the animal kingdom. Now, of course, whales sing songs and dolphins make clicks and sounds and things. So there, there's a lot of basis for that. that. That communication in one form or another within um, collectives does develop over time. So our Karoo, who are hopping around armed with basic stone devices, the challenge with stone tools is that it's only certain types of stone that you can use. There are certain types of stone that when you hit them with another rock, just crumble. There are other types of stone which you use as the rock that hits other rocks because it is so dense, it's difficult to break. So you have to find certain types of stones. Flintstone, for example, has a sharp edge, is relatively moldable in terms of hitting it at right angles and making flakes fall off of it. So that starts to keep those karoo that realize that these rocks are not lying around everywhere around certain areas which again is the basis for our agriculture. So our Karoo now start to have territories, and they start to have communication to indicate that their territory is under threat. There's a predator moving through that may try and come and eat their uh, offspring, and that the Karoo need to go with their newfangled weaponry and go and defeat this predator. Or a much more obvious example is that the wildlife in the area is becoming scarce simply because that's what wildlife do. They realize that there are predators in the area and they move away if they can. Furthermore, if you are depleting the wildlife in that space, if you are hunting everything to the point of extinction, obviously that's going to become rare as well. So, the Karoo are now starting to become a little bit more territorial. They are starting to use tools in more interesting ways. Perhaps by now they've discovered fire. Again, that's a whole different question as to where that came from. Does fire happen because of a lightning strike and a Karoo happened to see the tree fall onto an animal and the animal got cooked and the Karoo thought that that tasted quite nice? Well, kangaroos are vegetarians by design, so as a result, they probably wouldn't have eaten the corpses of something. So as vegetarians, they're going to be decimating the the food sources around them. Now, interestingly, because they're hovering around these stone tools, they start to realize that areas where they basically go to the bathroom a lot in their middens are starting to sprout the plants that they like to eat. And they start to gather around those two areas. They start to realize that there is good eating if they just come back to this place after going elsewhere. And then they will find that their food has regrown and the stone is still here. So in a large area, the Karoo are moving around. They're creating these midden areas that have got the shoots of plants that they've been eating, growing out of their dung. They've got flint and stone that they're starting to use. They've got a primitive form of communication starting to develop to now control and map out this area that they're in. We know migratory animals use all kinds of things in order to move around the planet. There's magnetic lines that they are aware of. There is simple memory that they are aware of. All these interesting things that we don't fully understand exist. So the Karoo are moving around, but they're also not moving in natural circles. They're now moving where there is flint. They're moving where there are their middens. They're moving to where food grows. Again, because their brains are starting to advance in terms of thinking literally, in their case, outside of their own heads and just living for the day they're starting to realize that food grows in certain areas. So they move to those areas. And when that area is depleted, they move on to the next area. So communication is starting to become more and more important to say, hey, folks, we're moving over there rather than we're staying over here. Slowly and slowly, those movements that the Karoo are going on, they start to become localized. And they also start to realize that, hang on a moment, This area here, the food grows really quickly, but that area over there, the food grows really slowly. So we're going to stay here where the food is growing quickly, and we're going to see if we can make it grow more. How do we make it grow more? Well, we've noticed that when we throw away certain shoots that we've been eating that are not yet ripe, they start to grow. And our middens cause these things to grow as well. So let's put our middens on the shoots that are lying around and see if they grow better. And voila, they do. We've just developed fertilizer and we've just started agriculture. Now, what is interesting is there's a book uh, that I read a long time ago. Uh, I think it's just called Happiness. But it's asking the question of, are we happier today as a species than we were when we were at the point of the Karoo as they are at the moment? Our closest analog in terms of trying to figure this out is going to go and look at the cultures and tribes that still live very much like the Karoo live at the moment in our story. We go to the San Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in my home country of South Africa, or we go to the Amazon tribes who are still fairly isolated. And we look at what are they doing? Because they never got to the agricultural step. They didn't really settle down. They didn't domesticate many animals. They didn't start growing large crops. They knew where root tubers and where certain crops grow uh, naturally, But they don't base their movement cycles on those. Not to the point that sedentary farmers do in terms of not moving at all. What this then does is it shows us that these cultures, they have language, they have very developed social skills, and you can take that person from that culture, raise a baby in a sophisticated New York apartment, and that baby will integrate without any problems whatsoever. So in other words, genetically and biologically, we are identical. But from a cultural perspective, there is no writing. If anything, there is a crude form of marking days or months or the passage of time. But there's very little concept of time as well, other than sun up, sun down, and the changing of the seasons, which, interestingly enough, there aren't a huge amount of seasonal changes. In the Karoo, it doesn't snow often. It does happen once or twice in a millennium type of thing, but the environment remains either hot or slightly hot. The same in the Amazon jungle. So for the Karoo that are living in this paradise, they don't have to change. But for the Karoo tribes that were kicked out, that were forced out of these territories by stronger Karoo tribes, they're now finding themselves having to deal with all manner of very interesting things, like snow, like torrential rain, like a complete lack of wildlife and vegetation. They're forced to either adapt or die. If they don't learn where to find the shoots to plant in their middens, they're going to starve to death. Or they have to regress to being much more primitive in their hunting, and perhaps they have to turn to start eating flesh. So now they're starting to eat the flesh of animals in order to survive. That is going to change their culture fundamentally from the plant eaters. Why? Well, because when you're eating the organs of other animals, you start to realize that there are all kinds of interesting things inside a body that a plant doesn't automatically have. Certain plants, yes, are incredibly robust. And most of our ropes today are made out of plant fibers because they're so strong. But go back 50,000 years and plant fiber is okay, but the sinews of an animal are so much stronger. And if you work out how to cure them properly, you don't just leave them out in the sun so they dry and get hard, but you carefully dry them, you suddenly start to get some very interesting new tools which you can use to make the tools that you had even better, which allows you to kill more of those animals. So in this journey, we've got this incredible evolutionary walk that I've kind of cobbled together from the various books that I've read, the various videos that I've watched. You might have a very different evolutionary approach. You might choose, actually, the gods threw them all down there. They started with a population of 20 million Oh, and they all starved to death because they didn't have agriculture. They hadn't developed that technique yet. They were, they were literally just thrown down there. Or they were thrown down there with all the knowledge that they currently have, which would then imply, by the way, as a segue, that if you arrived with all of the knowledge that you were going to need because the gods realized that you need to live in stone cities and you need to have this and you need to have that, why then would you develop further? If you have the capacity to make stone structures and fires and keep warm and make fine clothes out of various plant matter and that sort of thing, there would be very little impulse to develop further. There would be very little requirement to develop further because you have what you need. And we see this, for example, in certain tribes that encountered other tribes, and instead of absorbing their knowledge, instead of advancing their culture, declared that because their way of life that had been going on as far as memory was concerned was fine, there would be no advances and any new technology was shunned. So we've seen that in our own human history already. So if you have a pre-start are you going to learn and adapt new things, or are you going to have the species that are just happy, they're satisfied with what they have, as opposed to the Karoo, who are literally inventing things to stay alive. And what they invent next, as far as the story is concerned, is absolutely fascinating as far as I'm concerned, and well, this is my podcast, so sorry for you, this is what you get. Until next week, I wish you and yours the very happiest of gaming.